to all the essential workers out there, I hope you're holding up okay. And to everyone else, stay the fuck home. Picture it. Hollywood. The 1930s. The Disney studio was always at the forefront of innovation in the early years of animation. Even if they weren't always the first to innovate, the studio would always be one of the first to embrace a new idea and popularize it, leading other studios in the process. And, in order to innovate, everyone has to be open to playing around. Even the boss. I'll be honest with you, the main story for this episode was super short, so get ready for a long-winded history lesson I'm in no way qualified to give. I'm Joss Hoskinson, and this is Off the Cutting Room Floor. Walt and the Missing Mickey Footage. That isn't explicit. The sweatbox session. It's a term used to describe the animation industry's form of dailies, or rushes. At least, according to Wikipedia. It's when a new piece of animation or footage is screened for the producers, directors, staff, and department heads for approval. The term comes from the early days at the Disney studio, when Walt Disney would sit in the studio's small screening room with the production staff to see their work. It was deemed sweatbox due to the small screening room getting hot in the days before AC. Or maybe because the screenings would make the animators sweat, nervous about what the boss would think of their footage. Maybe it was a combination of both. On this day, the footage being viewed was for the upcoming feature Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, and included experimental test animation for Dopey by animator Fred Marr. Thought of as the leftover dwarf, everyone had been having trouble pinning down exactly what Dopey's character and personality would be in the film, let alone just in the scene they were trying to break. When someone suggested he might act like comedian Eddie Collins, the concept seemed to stick. Members of the staff soon went to see him perform, I'm sure totally for research and not at all because it was an excuse to go to the theater, and soon invited him back to the studio to give his input and a few suggestions on the character. And those suggestions were filmed. Live action footage had been in use as reference in the studio before, though only as training tools, or as just a source for inspiration. During development of Snow White, Nosferatu was screened for the animators, is a factoid that is forever lodged into my godforsaken brain. However, at the time, the only real way to study live-action footage through the language of animation, and how animators had been using live-action footage for years, was through the use of rotoscoping, where the action would be traced frame by frame using a specialized projector, a very time-consuming process with not great results, depending on who you ask. With the film of Eddie Collins, nothing could be used in whole, though Fred Moore studied the footage nonetheless on his moviola, looking for a spark of character and a spark of personality that could help crystallize the character. Apparently it worked, because when Walt first saw the tests, he turned to everyone gathered in the sweatbox and said, why don't we do more of this? And thus, the use of live-action reference footage began. Soon, the studio sought out other comics from the stage, and turned to the performers voicing the other dwarves, and even studio storymen with a flair for acting, all for one purpose. Just stand in front of a camera and do... something. An expression, an action, just anything that could help define and develop a character. But, how to use it? 
At the Disney studio, rotoscoping simply just would not do. Again, time consuming. And soon, the processing lab developed a way to print the frames onto photographic paper. These photostats, the same size as the studio's animation paper, could be flipped by an animator, much like a piece of animation. And when it was, as Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnson wrote in Disney Animation The Illusion of Life, we were amazed at what we saw. The human form and movement displayed far more overall activity than anyone had supposed. It was not just the chest working against hips, or the backbone bending around. It was the very bulk of the body pulling in, pushing out, stretching, protruding. Here were living examples of the squash and stretch principles that had only been theories before. And here was the follow-through, and the overlapping action, the changing shapes, the tensions and the counter-tensions, the weight shown in the timing, and the exaggeration, unbelievable exaggeration. We thought we had been drawing broad action, but here were examples surpassing anything we had done. Again, this wasn't just simply bare-bones rotoscoping, or just mindlessly tracing a piece of action. At least, not once the Disney animators knew exactly how to use the footage. Quote, Whenever we stayed too close to the photostats, or directly copied a tiny piece of human action, the results looked very strange. The moves appeared real enough, but the figure lost the illusion of life. It was impossible to become emotionally involved with this eerie, shattery creature who was never a real inhabitant of our fantasy world. Not until we realized that the photographs must be redrawn in animatable shapes were we able to transfer this knowledge to cartoon animation. At first shot just for general reference, with no rhyme or reason behind a piece of footage, live-action reference syncing up to a film's continuity or soundtrack was, to be put simply, an act of God. Though animators soon realized that it would be easier, quicker, and more productive if a specific scene or action was filmed so they wouldn't have to search too hard for what they needed. Sequence directors also realized that the process could be useful in workshopping a scene's staging in action before the animation process. Thus, more care started to be put into the process, with basic sets, props, and costumes being worked into the fold. Post-World War II, the Disney studio found itself in a bit of a bind. After the enormous success of Snow White, the war practically cut off international markets, and as a result, ensuing Disney films had a habit of not making money. Surviving primarily off of cheap package films and contract work for the government during the war, afterwards, Walt knew a feature with the same level of success as Snow White was needed in order for the studio to survive. And maybe Cinderella could be it. But in order to make it work, the film would need to be cost effective, and the animation process had to be streamlined with as little experimentation as possible. In short, an animator's first test would need to be okay for cleanup animation whenever possible. It was for this reason the production turned to the heavy use of live action reference. Nearly the entire film was shot in live-action first, with the staging, personality, characters, and even cutting fully developed in the medium before being passed off to the animators. The only portion of the film left out of the live-action equation was the non-human characters, with their scenes being played out in storyboard form in the film's Leica reels. Work prints? A quick side, Disney, I know you're listening, based off the title alone. You re-release this film every seven years. You have a streaming platform you need exclusive content for. You have a massive maintained archive. We're all locked in our homes right now. Pay someone to dig the live-action cut of Cinderella out, scan it, restore it. You know what? D don't restore it. Just scan it. Throw it up on Disney+. Plus. Sing it up to the film soundtrack if you want. Send it to me. I'll do it. I've been doing that for ten years as a hobby anyway. I'm unemployed. I have plenty of time. We all have plenty of time. You've been mentioning this thing for years, stop teasing us with it. Anyway, 
Many of the film's animators were understandably against this practice, and a few even outright disregarded the live action footage whenever possible. Regardless, the footage served its purpose, it kept costs down, and Cinderella went on to become the financial success the studio needed it to be. By the time Peter Pan came down the pipeline, live-action reference, though still far more complicated than the days of storymen making funny faces, was once again merely a guide. As for the reference models, well, along with comedians, silent film actors were often turned to for reference, especially in the early days, since the art of silent pantomime translated well into the medium of animation. Specific parts, though, called for specific performers. A young dancer named Marjorie Boucher was cast as a dance model for Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, as both Snow White and Dopey in The Silly Song. She was later used as a model for the Blue Fairy in Pinocchio, Mr. Stork in Dumbo, and, for technique, Hyacinth Hippo in the Dance of the Hour segment and Fantasia, a sequence she also helped choreograph. Later in life, she would be known for her work in film musicals under her married name, Marge Champion. Sometimes, an established name was sought out. During production on Fantasia, Bela Lugosi filmed live-action reference footage for Night on Bald Mountain's Chernobog. Bill Teitla, Chernobog's animator, found the performance lacked the power and gravitas needed and believed the footage was useless. He subsequently had Bald Mountain sequence director Wilfred Jackson shoot new reference footage shirtless after, I can only imagine, assuring him, Bro, I need to animate, dude. Don't make this weird. This isn't weird. For Hyacinth Hippo's physicality and personality, Hattie Noel was cast. A singer and actress of a larger frame, she found herself basically in a bikini with a tutu as her costume for the shoot, and was understandably self-conscious and worried that the entire thing was being done as one big joke. Sequence director, Teehee, I'm not making a joke here, that was his name, Teehee. It's how this man chose to be credited. A larger man himself understood, and assured her that it would only be used to help the animators, and, to show her it was all in good fun, he stripped down to her shorts and, quote, danced in all my bulk in front of the cameras. During production on Sleeping Beauty, Mela Normie, I hope, aka Vampire, was brought in as a live-action model. I'll let you take a guess who that spooky bitch played. <laughs> Later on, a character's voice actor being used for their live-action reference became much more common, with Catherine Beaumont filming live-action reference footage for Alice in Alice in Wonderland, including the tea party scene with Jerry Kalana as the March Hare and Ed Wynn as the Mad Hatter. Some of Wynn's dialogue during the scene was actually lifted straight from the live-action shoot, as his later studio recorded track was deemed far less funny. She later repeated the experience as Wendy in Peter Pan, opposite Bobby Driscoll as Peter. This practice, however, seems to have been relatively short-lived, at least in terms of polished film shoots. The voice actors are now just simply filmed during their recording sessions. And that practice, it seems, harkens back to the early days of live-action reference, during production on the 1939 Mickey Mouse short, The Pointer. Yep, the long-winded history lesson to fill out the script is over. Let's get to what this episode was really supposed to be about. But first, something completely different. In a world where mysteries regularly go unsolved, one unlikely duo of PhD holding truth finders. I am Chad Kimmons, and today with me, as usual, is my co-host and fellow PhD in solving unsolved mysteries. Dr. Colt Joyce here, reporting in. Shine a light 
through the darkness. The only podcast that will tell you the absolute truth when it comes to Unsolved Mysteries. This isn't your typical boring, stuffy podcast about mysteries. Other podcasts, they're like, here's the evidence and we think that this might have happened. We're, we're being very logical here. No, we know what happened. We tell you what happened. Mm-hmm. Every episode will make you laugh. Romeo, Romeo. Did you fart, oh, Romeo? <laughs> Cry. Not a lot of people know this, but um, foodies originated in the Roman Empire. With laughter, and even teach you what it means to love. You faxed me what looked like a degree drawn in crayon. That's correct. To laugh at our jokes. Join Doctors Kimmons and Joyce as they expertly solve all of the worlds. The police chief or whatever that was off in Switzerland was in league with the final victim who he killed to cover his tracks. Greatest. The colonists at Roanoke were double teamed by Hades and Poseidon. Mysteries. D.B. Cooper invented Jack Links. He is all incarnations and sightings of Bigfoot. Don't miss out on the newest phenomenon sweeping the nation. Unsolved Mysteries. Solved. Chad Kimmons and Colt Joyce are neither PhDs nor experts in anything. New episodes every Thursday. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. The Pointer, the first traditionally released and distributed Mickey Mouse shirt to use Fred Moore's second squash and stretch design for Mickey. The first produced shirt that used the redesign was Mickey's Surprise Party, released five months earlier. However, it was sponsored and distributed by Nabisco. That Nabisco. It was basically Disney's first commercial. It was a short built almost entirely around personality and character, with very little story or even gag work. The premise is simple. Out on a hunting trip, Mickey is training Pluto how to be a hunting dog, and is trying to teach his loyal companion how to point at game. As they're about to head out for the day, Mickey tells his pupper that if all goes well, Tonight, we'll have whale on toast, and maybe a nice, big, juicy, and that's all there is to it. Pluto eventually separates from Mickey, who doesn't realize it even after he unknowingly stumbles upon and bothers a sleeping bear. And his reaction upon seeing the bear for the first time? According to Frank and Ollie in The Illusion of Life, it was pure Walt, writing, No one but Walt would have thought of that dialogue, or stretched out the situation to so much footage, or expected the animator to sustain the predicament with nothing but personality. In fact, during production, Walt's act out of the scene was so funny, the animators asked if they could film him as he recorded the dialogue. And hey, Walt was physical as a voice performer anyway, and would engage in act outs during voice sessions. But Walt was less than enthused on the idea. With the first Disney TV special, One Hour in Wonderland, 11 years off, and the series, Walt Disney's Disneyland, a further four years off after that, he was unsure of himself on camera and didn't quite know how the resulting footage would be used. Besides, when done well, voice work can be incredibly taxing when you're not being filmed, especially when doing one so unnatural to your own. Eventually, the animator's enthusiasm won out, and Walt agreed to be filmed. With a few provisions, of course. Well, if you keep the camera in the booth, not out on the stage, mind you, and I don't know when you're doing it. Walt arrived in his baggy's clothing and, in the most early to mid-20th century man description I've ever read, quote, his favorite old felt hat, on the day of recording, which Frank and Ollie pointed out did not give him a crisp appearance but did make him feel comfortable and relaxed. 
Well, okay, that is a valid coping mechanism in the year 2020. I'm pretty sure I've been wearing the same shirt for like a week and a half. I think. What day is it? Walt's wishes were respected, and the camera was kept in the booth, resulting in him being nothing but a tiny figure on the footage. Despite that, the camera was still able to capture the hearts, personality, and essence of Walt's performance. One piece of information also came to light during the performance. According to Frank and Ollie, at the point in the recording where he said, I'm Mickey Mouse, you know, Mickey Mouse, Walt instinctively reached out with his hand to denote the height of a little kid. It was the only time we ever knew just how big Walt considered Mickey to be. Despite how much of the footage helped the animators, and the further use and development of live-action reference at the studio, according to Frank and Ollie, Walt never allowed anyone to film him during a voice session again. And years later, when the animators went to look at the footage, it was gone without any explanation. Oh, by the way, I should bring up the fact that sometime around 1998, reference footage was found for 1940's Mr. Mouse Takes a Trip, showing Walt and Billy Bletcher as they record their dialogue. The only information I can find about it is that it exists, and it kind of undermines the entire ending, so... Let's just not talk about it, okay? This has been Off the Cutting Room Floor. The main source for this episode was the book, Disney Animation, The Illusion of Life, later republished as The Illusion of Life, Disney Animation, by Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnson. Opening and closing theme, Always Slept So Soundly, is by Sarasu, off the EP, Domestications. He can be found at soundcloud.com slash and on Twitter, at Music. Got corrections? Want to get in touch? Shoot me a message at Joss Hosky on Twitter, or send an email to cuttingroompod at gmail.com. To stay updated on the upcoming season and one-off episodes, follow the show at OCCRoomPod on Twitter. Want to support the show and what I do? Become a patron at patreon.com slash joshhosky. Share the show with your friends or leave a rating and review on your podcatcher of choice. Other sources for this episode can be found in the show notes. To find transcripts and any corrections, visit kettingroompod.tumblr.com. It was deemed the sweet, the sweet box. I I legit type sweet box.